Good morning. Mild out there, isn't it? Warm even. Maybe a little too warm. 2023 has been really anomalous, um, with every single month being uh, within the top five warmest months. So we've had the warmest June, the warmest July, the warmest August, and now the warmest September. That's Dr Samantha Burgess, Deputy Director at the Copernicus Service on Thursday's News at One. And yes, we are breaking records all over the shop. What's really noticeable for this year is not only was it the warmest July on record, but the warmest month. Globally, it's been the warmest uh, summer period, so June, July, August. And September has really um, broken all of those records uh, at an unprecedented level. So it's not the warmest month, obviously. That, that is still July 2023. But September 2023 is the most anomalous month of any month of any year in our data set, which goes back to 1940. So what that means is the, the amount warmer this September has been from any previous September is half a degree. And, and normally when you're breaking records at a monthly level, it is by a very, very small amount, so in the hundredth of a degree. So to break it by half a degree is really quite surprising. So the story of 2023 there in terms of uh, climate and climate change is this, um, and we remember across continental Europe, the very, very high temperatures, but, but it's continued well into the autumn. Yes, that's right. And I think um, I saw online yesterday that parts of France were 35 degrees in, in early October. So that's you know 20 degrees warmer than it should be for this time of year. And with our climate emergency and ever-present background home, we need to cut our emissions a little over 50% by 2030, getting to zero by 2050. But to get there will cost us. According to the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, and it's hard to be precise, our exchequer will need to find billions of euro. Its chief economist, Dr Eddie Casey, outlined the figures to Audrey on Morning Ireland. So we're going to see lots of revenues just basically burn up, lots of taxes, things like petrol, diesel, the tax we take in on that and fossil fuels, but also on new cars, motor tax. All of these things are linked to emissions. And so as we see less and less emissions and less fossil fuel use, we'll see lots of those taxes disappear. And we estimate How much are you talking about? So about two and a half billion by 2030 in today's terms. Um, so that's a lot of money. Um, but also on the spending side, we can see big impacts. So that's the second big area. So, so sorry, just two and a half billion by 2030 or each year? Until each 20, year. Each year. Yeah. So on average out to 2030, we expect they'll lose two and a half billion per annum on average, but it's going to be growing. Uh, so after 2030, it'll gradually rise to about four to four and a half billion per uh, year, per year again. So this is a permanent hit that we're seeing coming down the tracks and we need to start planning for it. However, it appears that planning is not taking place. Were you saying these figures of four billion per year after 2030, they're not included anywhere in any government figures at the moment? So the official budgetary forecasts go out to 2026. And it's really at that point in time, 2027, 2028, 2029, that we start to see all this ramp up. And we use the work from University College Cork that does great modelling work in terms of how people will uh, adapt. And we can see that the revenues really would start to drop off at that point as we make a big switch to electric vehicles and retrofitting. So you're talking about revenue. Now, there's other areas as well where the cost is very clear, and that's to do with grants and supports and dealing with extreme weather events. Exactly. So I mentioned the retrofitting there, and that's a massive part of it, but there's also uh, supports to sectors that will be badly hit. 
Um, and these things probably won't happen so that we won't make the changes that we need to make unless it's incentivized to some extent because it's just not financially viable for people to do it and they'll be cash constrained. So really what is probably going to have to have to happen is that the government will have to step in in some way. We estimate the cost there in today's terms could be anywhere between one and a half to three billion. But there's big assumptions again there. per year. Again per year. So these are permanent hits. And if you take those two estimates together, you're looking at four to five and a half billion. This is about the size of the budget that we're uh, debating over going into next week. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like trying to find another full budget and how we're going to replace these revenues, how we're going to find the supports that we need to actually enable the transition. And so it's a massive amount of money that we need to start planning for. And the two big areas of expenditure will be farming and retrofitting. But that is before we even talk about mitigating for extreme weather events. And what we can see really in the long-term data is Ireland is clearly getting wetter, it's getting warmer, and there's more extreme uh, variation in the weather. And what we'll have to do to adapt to that really is build things like flood defences, we'll have to plan for wildfires, and we'll have to look at what who is going to foot the bill for damages that might happen from time to time. And what cost are you putting on those damages? So this is incredibly uncertain. What we looked at was the historical damages associated with our events in Ireland, and there were about 0.1% of national income, which is about 250 million. That could double if we move in line with other European countries, but it's anyone's guess how high it could get. Meanwhile, I know, but the ice caps are melting. Because in the Antarctic, an area of sea ice the size of Western Australia has simply melted away. With Claire, Dr Ariane Purick, a climate scientist at Monash University in Melbourne. Most of us have never been to the Arctic or have never been to Antarctica. Um, and so it can seem like, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, but Antarctic sea ice is important for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I guess, you know, that's why I'm here talking about it. Um, so one of the reasons that Antarctic sea ice is important is because it's important for ecosystems. Creatures that live around Antarctica and in the Southern Ocean depend on the sea ice. Um, so, you know, one iconic example of these are penguins. Um, around Antarctica, there are different species of penguins. Um, one of these are the emperor penguins. Um, and these actually uh, live and breed on the sea ice. Um, we had this really, really awful situation last year um, where we had sea ice melting back earlier than it usually does. Um, and it melted back before the penguin chicks were ready to swim. If we think of what penguins look like, when we're thinking of the adult penguins, they have their, their slick black and white feathers, which is what allows them to be really good swimmers. But the, the chicks, they're those really cute, fluffy grey chicks and those feathers, they can't swim with those fluffy feathers. So the sea ice melted back and over 9,000 penguin chicks drowned. It was really awful. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, th- this case is highlighting that sea ice is important for Southern Ocean species like the penguins. So so the reality was that their habitat, the, the sea ice that they need when they are babies, it disappeared and they were left to it, drown. Yeah, it, it melted from beneath them before they had their adult feathers. So either they fell into the ocean and they drowned or some of them were able to get back onto ice. But then those fluffy feathers, they don't dry quickly and yeah. the penguins froze. Um, it is it's awful. a really awful thing. Um, And while that is incredibly distressing, will it be enough to make any of us really change our behaviour? And Ariane, just before we finish, how frustrating is it to have all of this information, to see the impact of it, and then to see the slow pace of change when it comes to dealing with climate? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I feel like as a climate scientist, uh, it is so difficult uh, to understand these changes that are happening, to see these changes in our, in our day-to-day work um, and to know what needs to be done, but yet to see it not being done fast enough. I guess, though, what we need to think about when we're hearing these terrible news stories, we're hearing that sea ice is dramatically low, we need to take this information and we need to remember that we are making progress in acting on climate. We have the Paris Agreement. We have aims where we know we need to get our global emissions to. Uh, Emissions are coming down. They're not coming down as fast as they need to. We need to be doing more. But we, we need to take this awful news story and use this information as more motivation because we are making improvements and a lot of the worst of climate change over the coming century can be avoided by things that we do now. So we need to to reduce our emissions now, but I think we can do it. Dr. Ariane Purick on a hopeful note with Claire. On Arena, a new play called Rope a Dope and this is from boxer turned actor Terry O'Neill. He was a cracking interview. Now we'll get to the play, but first, the boxing. It was a sport he loved from the get-go. I walked in the boxing club and I came out changed. Like it just, my dad even talks about it now. He remembers that day quite well. I just walked around, mouth agape. Like it was finally, here's something I can do. I feel like I can take to this. I'm interested in this. And you, you say you mentioned in the script actually you mentioned talk about specific sounds and specific smells that really bring you back to that first day in there. Absolutely, I mean like the sound of a speed bike being <clears throat> volleyed against its bracket, the sound of, like the leather of sound like two grown men punching each other in the ring sparring, mm. or the rat tat tat of the skipping rope, and the smell like the smell. I think any ex-boxer listening will know. It's the same smell in every boxing club in the world. From Tala to Crumlin to Dorset Street, Dublin to Whitechapel, London to Havana, Cuba, Mexico City. It's like a, a mix of leather, sweat, disinfectant and cheap deodorant. That's the way it smells. <laughs> All of them. All of them. Every one of them. It's a uniform smell. But you get to love that smell if you spend enough time there. Yeah, yeah. Now O'Neill became an Irish champion medal winner and he trained with some of the best. Mick Dowling himself was there, yeah. Who you say doesn't really speak in words. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned in the show that Mick Mick wouldn't like, you know, he's got a great speaking or TV voice, but he doesn't use it very often because he spoke exclusively with punches. <laughs> Mick would kind of go into the gym and like, zap, zap, yup, 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 bobbing and weaving and throwing shapes. And go, yup, yup, whoop, yup, bam. More sound effects and punches. He's yeah. very, a very visual coach, shall we say. He'll show you what to do, not tell you. Now, though, O'Neill is drawing on that career in the ring for his play. Boxing for the Irish team, and you're always terrified of drawing somebody from, like, the Ru- Russia or the Ukraine or um, or Kazakhstan, one of these guys, you know, really fearsome kind of boxers. Mm. You meet the Russian and David fight, and you might try and be friendly, you know, stick your hand out for a handshake, and it's like... <laughs> Just pull it away. I will not shake hands with you, Irish, for you are my enemy, and tonight I will break you in the head. Then the fight would start, because that's not exactly good radio, but the fight would start, and they'd have these lovely, languid kind of southpaw styles, fainting high with the right hand, fainting low, keeping it busy. Then, boom! <laughs> I make joke earlier today, Irish, I break body instead. And he punches you in the tummy. Punches you in the tummy, scary, scary. Compared to, say, if you box against somebody from Wales, it was often different, you know? They were much friendlier in the day of a fight. I bumped into the Welshman before the fight, and it was very much a case of, like, oh, hello! I believe we'll be sharing a ring together this evening. What a pleasure. My name is Ryan with four eyes and two eyes. 
See you later on. Don't hit me a low blow, you old devil. <laughs> a lot friendlier. And he talked about the parallels between boxing and acting. And you're up on stage now and you're performing the show on a daily basis. It's just you. So who's your opponent when you're up there by yourself? Who am I versus? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, I guess your opponent, I, if you, I guess kind of philosophically you could say it's yourself. It's always yeah. yourself in the yeah. mirror, isn't it? Probably is in boxing as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the only one you can control when you think about it. Like you can't control your opponent. You can only control. I heard John Kavanagh talk about something similar to this. McGregor's coach saying that like you can't control your opposition. You can only control your opponent. So if you can master your technique, master your fear, your emotions, then maybe you can you can do all right. So it's a bit of a head game then, a bit Absolutely. like a bit like acting in that yes, respect. Definitely. Terry Grit, Terry O'Neill on his play Rope a Dope, all on arena. Later today, that make-or-break game against Scotland. Oval balls on Morning Ireland. Des spoke to Donald Lenehan. So I sense you're going for an Ireland win. I am. I think Ireland have invested too much over the last two years to get to this point, to, to let it fall. Um, you know, they know Scotland. Uh, look, we've won eight in a row. That's well documented. And that, that run is going to fall at some stage. But I think it would be catastrophic if... Ireland were to lose on this occasion. Everything they've done has been geared towards this. I just think they have the age, both in experience and in tactical news. But Scotland will not go down without one hell of a fight. With Ray, Peter Wright. I, I, I just see Johnny Sexton today. It was always going to come down to this game. What's the atmosphere like in Scotland, Peter? Uh, very nervous. Uh, we, 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 we had the same thought that it would always come down to the Scotland-Ireland uh, game. We were obviously hoping that South Africa would beat Ireland and then it would be a, a, a straight winner-takes-all. Uh, but the permutation is slightly simple in what you guys are saying. If, if Scotland win by eight points uh, and Ireland don't get a bonus point of any sort, Ireland are out because it goes on the head-to-head. So Scotland uh-huh. will have a, yes, a yes. winning head-to-head against Ireland. So they would so Obviously, if you get a bonus point for four tries, you would go through. But if we can deny you four tries and beat you by eight points, then <laughs> you guys are gone. And Johnny Sexton's last game is tomorrow night. Hmm, now we don't speak rugby, but we don't like the sound of that. Come on, Ireland. But staying in Paris, we have wine, we have baguettes, and we have bedbugs. You talk about in the insects giving them a bit of a bite. Well, it's actually more of a pierce and a suck because they, they, have a, they inject their mouth part in and then suck our blood out. Colin Moore from Rentakill with Claire with that lovely technical detail because bedbugs were all over the place this week thanks to their infestation in the French capital. And Dr Moore, a man quite into his subject matter. Can you see them? You can, yes. The adults are about five millimetres and they're disc shaped. Um, Now they can be quite translucent if they haven't had a feed but then their bodies go a little bit darker when they've just recently fed on you. Nice. So they're sort of brownish, dark ochre. So when you go into a hotel room, would you would you check for them if you're going in for you know visiting? You, you check, yeah. do you? <laughs> I travel. I travel quite a bit, um, and so I bring a torch everywhere with me, and I'll I'll undo the bed, as it were, not not take it apart, but I'll certainly take the sheets off, etc. And I'll be looking in the in the key areas, such as the the frame of the the bed, the seams of the mattress. I'll be looking in the lockers. The, the headboard, all those little cracks and crevices where these animals, they're, they're dorsoventrally flattened. In other words, they're disc-shaped and they, they walk around like a little coin, but they can crawl into these tiny little spaces and gaps. 
And of course, their eggs are smaller. They're only about a, a millimetre and a half. Oh, the and eggs. Then, oh, no. OK. Well, this is, and a trained eye can see them. They're, they are, they're not invisible. They're macroscopic, so you can see them. But then from the eggs will emerge nymphs um, about seven to ten days afterwards. And it's their, their like ever-decreasing size. They're little mini-me's of the, of the adult, mm-hmm. as it were. And they have to feed. They have to feed on you to grow. Oh, and who wouldn't want the little babies to grow? Scratchy in the bed now. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Oh, we're all about the sport this week. Oh, yes. Because making headlines, VAR, V-A-R, Video Assisted Referee, you take your pick either way. An epic fail. Because when a goal by Liverpool was disallowed in their match against Tottenham Hotspur, and this error was not picked up by the VAR, there was outrage. But sure as shooting, you can rely on us humans to mess up. On Morning Ireland, Damien O'Mara brought us this audio from behind the scenes. Prepare for your toes to curl. Check complete. It's fine. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Off. Thank you, mate. Wait, wait, wait. The on-field decision was offside. Are you, are you happy with this? Yeah. Are you happy with this? Offside decision. Is it go? Yeah. That's, no, that's what it does. What? On-field decision was offside. Are you happy with this image? Yeah, it's onside. The image we gave him is onside. Left back. He's played it, he's yes. gone off some <laughs> Delay, delay, delay. Yeah, Ollie's saying to delay. Ollie's saying to delay. Pardon? Ollie's calling in to say delay the game. To, to complete the yeah. decision is off. Can't do anything. Ollie's saying to delay. Ollie's saying to delay. Ollie? Yeah. Yeah, delay the game. To delay the game. Stop the game. They've restarted Nothing the game. From on the field. Yeah, anything. they've restarted. Yeah. Can't do anything. No. I can't do anything. Stay I can't back. do anything. Oh my god. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> that it's, went it's, well. It's kind of a combination between the moon landing and Keystone Cops. Like lads, you had one job. Oh gosh, what a mess. Painful listen. Yeah. Human error. Human error, all too human error. But for some, this was conspiracy. Ken Early from Second Captains outlined that point of view to Claire. Hmm, the United Arab Emirates Pro League. Manchester City have won the Premier League five of the last six <laughs> years, uh, around by the you know the United Arab Emirates. And here the refs are getting you know wined and dined and paid uh, in a in a little midweek earner in the United Arab Emirates. And and here they are uh, you know dispensing terrible wrong decisions against uh, Manchester City's main rival. Now. I don't think when you actually sit down and look at all the evidence that you can that you can see evidence of a clear bias or a direction. We could be here all day talking about, well, you know, there was this decision, there was that decision, and blah, 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 blah. But the fact is, how does this look? How are people meant to meant to think about this? I mean, <laughs> you know, we, we live in a time when trust in all forms of institutional authority is collapsing. Incredible. So you, they, they've, you, you say they've, they've opened the door to people coming up with these conspiracy theories in the wake of what was a human error. Well, conspiracy theories are, are literally the main form of social discourse now. Uh, it's not just football, but I think when you when you see things like this, 
um, it, it just amazes me that like the perception of integrity is not more important to them. Of course, they can say, well, you know, the two things are totally unrelated. You know, they're simply going off and, you know, they could do what they want in their free time. But I mean, come on, like, I mean, let, let's get real here. You know, this is a job where people are naturally suspicious of the of the bona fides of the referee anyway. When you give such easy ammunition to people who are claiming corruption, I don't really see what other outcome you can expect. And I would like to point out that this is this is really kind of a new development uh, in football, and it dates back really to the introduction of VAR, this mass uh, conspiracy theorizing about what's really going on. Because referees have always made mistakes, but that's now in the age of VAR, because you can't say, well, I didn't see the incident. Of course they can see the incident, but they still make mistakes. So how do you explain that? Well, the answer for a lot of people is, well, you know, they've been bought. This is a conspiracy. And conspiracy is not confined just to football, oh no. It seems as if it is infecting almost every realm. On Sunday, Brendan spoke to Naomi. Naomi Wolf, you're very welcome. Sorry, Naomi Klein, right? Klein? Not Wolf, right. Naomi Klein. Oh, you kidder. But that was the joke. Because it was the confusion between Naomi Wolf, author of 90s feminist classic The Beauty Myth, and Naomi Klein, author of the equally classic anti-globalisation text No Logo, that was at the heart of Klein's new book, Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. Because Naomi Wolf, the other Naomi, stay with me, she has become a conspiracy theorist. During COVID, she became a, a one of the most influential vectors for medical misinformation, in particular related to women's uh, wellness, fertility. She was one of the people who was most vocal about the claim that vaccinated people shed particles onto unvaccinated people and that interfered with their fertility, potentially caused bleeding, cramping, things like that. There was a study done by uh, by NPR in the States, the, the national broadcaster, um, that tried to get to, you know, why did so many people seem to believe this untrue things about vaccines? And they did a data analysis and found that much of it could be traced back to a few posts by Naomi Wolf, or if you weren't reading too closely, Naomi Klein. (laughs) (laughs) And since COVID, Wolf has become a darling of the right and is now a fan of one-time Trump advisor Steve Bannon. She put out a video several months into the pandemic, uh, shortly after the vaccines were introduced, and it was focused on the vaccine verification apps that we all downloaded on vaccine passport as they were right yeah Yeah. sometimes they were called vaccine passports and they they hadn't yet come to the states but they had come to israel they'd come to the uk um and she puts out this video that says vaccine passports equals slavery forever and it's a completely over-the-top video where she claims, against all evidence, that these vaccine verification apps will be able to, uh, to, the government will be able to track who you're with, where you go, and also what you talk about. So she said, you know, if you go to a restaurant um, and, you, and you're planning something political, they will be able to hear you. And then she says that this is part of a, of a plan to bring Chinese, a Chinese-style social credit system to the West, 
And it's going to give them so much power that they'll be able to turn off your life. And even in it will eventually it will have nothing to do with whether you're vaccinated or not. And so a lot of people laughed about this, um, uh, you know, in liberal left circles. How absurd. Of course, these these QR codes can't listen to our conversations. It's not a social credit system. It's just a yes, no, have you been vaccinated? But there were legitimate questions to be asked about this increased digitization of life. What happens when you need a smartphone to access a, a restaurant? You know, how does that discriminate against people who don't have smartphones? But many of those debates were just shut down during COVID. You were either kind of on board or you, or you were okay. with the crazies. And there's this adopting of this kind of knowing, kind of blasé attitude about issues that I don't think we should be blasé about. And that creates a perfect context for a figure like Bannon to say, come on over and we'll pretend that that all of our surveillance fears can be projected onto this one app. And then we have a very quick fix, which is let's just get rid of the apps and then everything will be fine. And so that's an example of, of what I what I mean when I when I write that the that conspiracy culture often gets the facts wrong, but the feelings right. And the yeah. feeling is this feeling that we are living in a surveillance culture and, and a lot of us are are, are not uh, okay with that. But but that feeling isn't isn't being given voice or outlet in mainstream politics. So it's pushing a lot of people into what I call the mirror world. And while we all become more entrenched in our views, how, Brendan wondered, can we meet in a place where all views can at least be heard? We basically know in a world where we don't even, people don't even agree on what reality is Mm. anymore, which is a very grim place to be. Can you give me in one minute uh, an answer to how we start unraveling that? Is it about having the conversations that, that, that Steve Bannon is having? Steve Bannon, Georgia Maloney are, are doing a kind of mix and match of real legitimate concerns and a pivot to turning on some of the most vulnerable people in our society. So I think the main thing we can do is take the legitimate concerns back and okay. try to have real answers to, to to those legitimate concerns, whether it's anger at big pharma or big tech. Um, I think there's lots of ways that we need to protect our kids and speak to those fears. Um, but ultimately, I think the reason why conspiracy culture is spreading in the way that it is is because people are trying to make sense of the fact that this they, they feel they feel... Uh, betrayed by the system that told them that if they worked hard and played by the rules, they would be able to get ahead. Um, So I think there are some systemic fixes that we need. We're not going to fix this one uncle at a time, I'm afraid. Naomi Klein with Brendan. With Kira King at nine, writer and academic Emma Dabbery, whose latest book is called Disobedient Bodies and draws on the work of the beauty myth by Naomi Wolf, the synergy of it all. I've been reading like a lot of feminist theory and critical theory and philosophy. There's a lot of philosophy in the book. And I was really interested in this, yeah, this idea of disobedience and something that I had read in uh, Naomi Wolf's seminal 90s, like feminist text, uh, The Beauty Myth, about um, the pressure on women to be incredibly thin isn't really about the way women look, but it's more about women's obedience and having women thinking, occupying so much of their headspace with this desire to be thin and also kind of like what not eating enough, like the actual impact that can have um, on on your thinking and how a starving population is kind of a malleable population and how this is all about making women more obedient. Mm-hmm. And so I was just really fascinated by the idea of disobedience and kind of like world politics of rejecting that and being 
quote-unquote disobedient would look like. So that's kind of like the thinking behind it. And at the age of 30, Dabbery threw away the weighing scales, gave up straightening her hair and shaving and she says freed her mind to think about more interesting things. And she's given birth to two children, so more changes. I feel like after I had my first son, my body kind of like went back to how it had looked previously, like more easily, <laughs> like more mm-hmm. quickly. And then like with my second son, like that wasn't that wasn't the case. And rather than kind of freaking out about it, like as I probably would have done at like an earlier stage of my life, I was just like, I'm going to kind of just lean into this. I'm going to kind of like embrace it. I'm also going to like, like doc- document it and share pictures of postpartum and what, what, what I look like currently. And also the novelty actually of kind of being curvier and like having boobs and stuff. Because I'm quite flat chested, mm-hmm. well, I was. Um, was I was, you know, I was just like, this is actually, this is interesting. And I just kind of want to like lean into it and like kind of like sit with the discomfort. Like something I write about in the book is for me personally, I get to places of greater like insight and confidence in my body and my appearance after I've kind of pushed myself to do things that I'm initially uncomfortable with. Um, so anything from like, you know, stopping straightening my hair to like not shaving to um, the way my body like changed after the birth of my second son. And if I kind of push through the discomfort, I often get to like a place of like deeper insight and confidence, mm-hmm. I guess. And she talked about looking to other cultures for a broader view of what we mean by beauty. Not to say that these are the ideas that are the dominant beauty culture necessarily in these cultures today, but they do exist. And I think just knowing that they ever existed is um, kind of gives us a blueprint for like, you know, how we could do things better. So in kind of like traditional like Yoruba culture, which is like my dad's ethnic group in Nigeria, but also like the Navajo of like North America, how in their kind of like traditional aesthetics, there was this um, drive towards um, balance and harmony rather than to perfection. And so the kind of beauty culture that emerges from when you're trying to achieve balance and harmony is very different to the one that emerges um, when you're trying to achieve perfection. And also beauty wasn't necessarily just understood as a singularly visual, physical thing, but beauty was also seen to exist in the relationships between things because this notion of harmony and balance was important. So beauty is kind of like interrelational and Mm -hmm. to do with your relationship to yourself and to others and to your community rather than it just being this kind of thing about objectification. So I was just fascinated in exploring, you know, ideas like that. And similarly with uh, Japanese culture, this idea of wabi-sabi where beauty is seen in in impermanence and where aging is seen as a part of life. So aging is kind of cherished and seen mm-hmm. as something beautiful rather than something to, to be feared and have the kind of evidence of avoided at all costs. Emma Dabbery with Kira King on Tuesday. On Thursday, a missile strike in the Kharkiv region of Ukraine, killing at least 51 people during a gathering for a funeral. Just after the news broke, Drive Time spoke to Ukrainian journalist Katerina Malafieva. 
the cafe and the grocery store was hit by a missile. Uh, at the moment, it is unknown um, whether it was a cruise missile or Iskander, but uh, something very heavy was uh, the strength of the impact was such big, so massive that uh, they're trying to identify bodies only by parts. Um, we know that so far uh, 50 people were killed, among them a uh, six-year-old uh, child, um, some sources say it was a, uh, it was a girl. Um, well, in this this village used to be under occupation of Russia, and uh, before the war there were approximately 500 residents. Uh, since the beginning of the, the invasion, there were 330 residents. So uh, if we just calculate the amount of killed people, it's basically from every family, from every yard, uh, one person, um, one member was uh, killed, uh, was present at this funeral dinner, funeral lunch. And this is probably the, the deadliest attack uh, on a civilian population since uh, 2023, basically, in this during this year. From drive time on Thursday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Sunday night. Kahal Funge, label of love. And this week brought us to New York in the 50s, where tradition records was nothing if not eclectic. It was also a Seamus Ennis piping record, a Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger album, and a couple of LPs from legendary Texan blues man, Lightning Hopkins. Oh, lightning trying to flag a ride. You know I'm standing on 75 highway. The mix of doing Lightning Hopkins right next to John Jacob Niles, right next to the Clancy Brothers. I think really did a lot in that moment. This is before the Newport Folk Festivals to sort of suggest if you like this stuff that's more accessible, you know, maybe you should check out this other stuff too. Label of Love for music lovers everywhere. Meanwhile, with Katie over on Liveline, they were doing death. Now, you might be thinking, I don't need this of a Saturday morning, but stay, because this was a really interesting and timely discussion on how to have a good death and how much autonomy we should have over the manner of our dying. Frank was a social worker who felt age and illness should not necessarily lead to assisted dying and terminal illness could be managed to minimise suffering. Also on the line, Pat. One of my best friends died of cancer a couple of years ago. She was in the hospice and she told the staff there, please don't increase my morphine until I say goodbye to my children. Um, And they didn't. Then they increased her morphine and she died peacefully the next day. There's a dignity in living. There's a dignity in dying. Um, So yes, there may need to be some change. Perhaps if someone... Um, you know, someone is going to die very soon. But doctors are doing this all the time. They increase. The key is that people don't suffer. And our palliative care hospitals and hospices, they do a tremendous job. 
absolutely tremendous job. And it's undermining healthcare professionals and doctors to be blasé and comparing a human person to putting your dog down. It's really, really I, I don't really think, to be fair now, Frank, I don't think Pat was being blasé at all. Uh, uh, Pat, I'll, I'll let you just respond to that for a second because... Yeah, no, I, I, I wasn't, uh, no, I didn't mean it like that whatsoever. As I, I did reiterate that I wasn't comparing uh, humans to animals. Um, what I do think, though, you, you spoke about a lady there that um, just said don't up her morphine until um, she said goodbye to her children. Um, that's more or less what I kind of mean as well. If you're in hospital and you know that there's no... You know, you you're not going to recover, and and you're in agony, and you're being kept alive by painkillers and oxygen and all this sort of thing. I personally, this is me. I'm not speaking for anybody else. Personally, I do not want to end up like that. Also, phoning Katie. Catherine, an intensive care nurse for 47 years and she wanted control over her life and her death. What do you want for yourself? You know, do you want somebody to... Fair choose if you want if you want somebody to look after you. I certainly don't. I will lock my gates and leave me alone <laughs> and <laughs> let it happen. I don't want anyone. I have a husband and he agrees with me. Both of us agree. But we don't have any children, so who looks after us? There's nobody there. And there's an awful lot of our age group that do not have children, be it for whatever reason. Um, and that's another day's story. But who looks after us? You can't expect your nieces and nephews and all that sort of thing. You know, you get on with it. You make your own decisions. And why can't we make our own decisions? And would you have any um, truck with some of the arguments that maybe Frank was making there or, or people who would be concerned about this would put forward in terms of... No, but if you if your will is valid with the solicitor, why can't your living will and death will be valid with the solicitor? And they're your wishes when you are of sound mind, not waiting till you get sick. Yeah. Like there is a history of strokes in my family. I don't want to wait till I have a massive stroke and I'm lying in the bed there and they're tube feeding me or whatever. That is not what I want for myself. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh-huh. and we should be all able to make our own decisions based on our life experiences. Just some of the voices from Wednesday's live line. Certainly an interesting discussion. With the Darcy, comedian Bill Bailey, he's got a new show. What is it called? I am the Thoughtifier. Right. It sounds like something like some old-timey vaudeville show. Yes. I went to see the Thoughtifier. He came to town. <laughs> yes. And, uh, yes. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> here he comes. Uh, look at this man. Is it real? Can he be doing what he is? Yes. He can titivate your minds with his extraordinary thoughts and amazing instruments. Ooh, you know, that feels. Yeah. <laughs> Thoughtifier, and it is digging into the human mind, the machine and AI, which for Bill Bailey is not necessarily all the devil's work. What I wanted to explore was the fact that 
human, one of the great things that we have, that we're almost like our, our secret weapon is our consciousness, is thought, is the random sort of oddness, the eccentricity, the fraud nature of humanity. That's what sort of connects with people. In terms of live, you know, that's really what, yeah. that's what makes it. That's what makes music work. That's what makes arts work, you know, the poetry, theatre, whatever you want. And so it's sort of really exploring that. And um, and I did actually do an experiment. I mean, there's been, there actually has been some comedy experiments with, with, with AI. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, with with sort of you know mixed results. I mean, like, uh, but the the other night I tried it out. I tried a live chat GBT wrote <laughs> in my show, and and it's amazing if you like. It's already getting to be quite sophisticated. Yeah. Like I was in Tewkesbury, which is this sort of you know very nice kind of market town in England. And um, and then you you know you say tell me about Tewkesbury and it says Tewkesbury is a blah 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 and it just burbles on spits out all the information from whatever you know Wikipedia. Mm. But then you can say tell me about Tewkesbury in a sarcastic way, right? <laughs> and then it just goes oh Tewkesbury so great it's really great I mean who wouldn't love it you know and immediately you think well this is actually I kind of. This is great. I didn't expect that. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's it's we can use it to our advantage. I think that's the thing. It's a tool that we can, if we get on top of it, we know how to manipulate it. Because you know, then it's yeah. going to be a positive. I think. Yeah, I, I I don't share your optimism, but but like even this week, uh, Tom Hanks has come out and said that dental ad with me on it. That's not me. You know. Like, uh, anyway, yeah. but I I say I say to everybody I meet, keep it live and messy. Because because AI can't do live and messy, although it, it can't. <laughs> no. That's exactly it. Yeah, it can't. It can't replicate the, the, the nonsense <laughs> yeah, that we come yeah, out with. Exactly. That's, it'll do its best to damn us, but it, it won't succeed. It won't succeed. Yeah. Now, this chat was all on a Thursday and later in that programme, Ray was going to get himself a drum lesson. He's learning the drums. He got some tips from Bailey, no slouch himself, in the music department. You want your tea? What? <laughs> bam, 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 bam. I mean, that's not a bad one, actually. Phil Collins. Oh, yeah, you know, oh, the, in, in the, the air tonight. tonight, yeah. Yes. yes. Now, there you go, you see. If you can get the drum, Phil, that's impressive. Yes, yes. Right. Uh, and what about Nirvana? I was thinking Smells Like Teen Spirit. Is, is that, would that be very difficult to do? That's quite a good one, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. that is, if you listen to Dave Grohl talking about it, though, yeah. you know, a lot of those a lot of those early Nirvana drum fills were all robbed off the old 70s funk and disco fills. Ah, right. So I would say practice your disco. Practice, practice your fourth disco. and floor. Practice, right, OK, yeah, yeah well, yeah. there you go, there you go. My 11-year-old my, my son uh, has discovered The Who uh, and he's playing oh, right. My Generation on loop and he, he's going, will you be able to play drums like him, Daddy? And I go, no, that's Keith Moon, that's Keith Moon. You, I won't be doing <laughs> that's that. That's Keith Moon, yeah. no, no, he's a, that's, a, that's a legend. But yeah, yeah. No, again, not a bad one to, to practice your sort of, you know, your stop and start. Yeah. Uh, uh, is, is, that, uh, is that difficult, the stop and start? Is it a bit like... Yeah, well, you've got to be able to kind of you don't don't let the drums control you. You've got to be in charge of them drums. Right. And okay. if you start if you start lashing away at those cymbals, they're all going to just be slashing away. You've got to be able to hit the cymbals and grab it and silent and use right. yeah, yes. it with your hands. Yeah, yeah. Or you you know you'll be it'll be all over you. Yeah. You know you want you you'll need arms like Shiva. All That's right. what I'm saying. Okay. And Bailey, as a veteran of Strictly Come Dancing, well, the drums ain't nothing, baby. Put it this way, when you dance to Paso Doble in front of millions of people, right, there's literally, there's nothing that really holds any great kind of, you know... Fear, sort of, yes. Any yes. fear anymore, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. 
<laughs> you're, 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 it's you're, sort of, you put yourself out there. Away all the fear. Yeah, exactly. It's like when they come in and they say, oh, well, it's a semi-final. We've got about 14 million people. Oh, all right, okay, all right. And you'll be dancing, what, the tango to Metallica's Enter Sandman. Yeah, okay, fine, that's fine. Absolutely normal. So... Something like that happens. You can tend to, you tend to just you know anything's breeze. Were, were you ever floating above yourself, looking at yourself on the dance floor? Was it was it an out of body ever? Every time, every time, right? oh, okay. every time yeah. I had an out of body experience. Yeah. I was like, what the hell is happening now? In fact, on the on that Metallica one, I actually got so excited I danced off the dance floor. I actually danced into a camera, and. Uh, <laughs> and it was it was one of my worst fears that I would actually that was what would happen I would I would actually lose I'd forget where I was and dance <laughs> off out of the studio <laughs> you know, like through a door you know like just down the road yeah, yeah. yeah where's he going yeah so um, yeah that was uh, that'll, uh, that'll do it yeah. Bill Bailey and later Ray took up those drumsticks with actual drummer Graham Hopkins you're going to say if 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 I have a future as a drummer here okay. we go. I honestly think with more practice is perfect and you've got it. Have I? You've got it, Ray Darcy. Just keep practicing. It makes perfect, you know? I, I, I'm excited because I, I, I think I have the basics. I think yes. I have the basics, right? Sourdough all over again. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. I'm not here for the next two weeks, but talk to you in a bit. Butter them, he's a hot knife, he makes my heart a cinema skull swing so